Best case ever. Best case ever. Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. Back on EM Cases for the probably 10th time or so, we've got my great friend, my colleague, my mentor, the walking encyclopedia of emergency medicine, Dr. Walter Himmel. Welcome, Walter, back to EM Cases. Thanks, Anton. That's highly overstated. And you've set an expectation I will never be able to meet. Oh, come on. But have I got a case for you? All right. You, you've, you've done a couple of best case evers. Uh, this one is going to be... The very best case ever. The, be- the best of the best cases ever. Absolutely. All right. All right. Let her rip. Let's hear it, Walter. So about a year and a half ago, I saw a fellow in the yellow zone. The yellow zone is an area where we have patients who are mildly ill and they're fully ambulatory. And I was the third doctor to see him in about 36 hours. So he presented a day and a half earlier with epigastric pain and slight nausea. He was given Pantalock and device to come back for an ultrasound. He returned 12 hours later from ultrasound, and it was absolutely normal. The diagnosis was either dyspepsia or athletic illness, and he was advised to continue with his uh, PPI medication, which he did. So 12 hours later, he still feels unwell, and he was complaining of nausea, increasing epigastric pain, poor appetite, and curiously enough, he felt short of breath. Those were the chief complaints. I went and had a peek at him, and, and here's, here was his past health. He had diabetes for three years and hypertension for about five years. He was on a thigh side and an ACE inhibitor and, of course, metformin, a new drug called caniglifosin, which also has the odd name in Canada of Invogana, which I vaguely was aware of at that time. So I examined him. He was tall, about six feet tall, 220 pounds. He's actually pacing back and forth and breathing slightly quickly, probably between 20 and 25 respirations per minute. The rest of the examination was unimpressive. His epigastrin was a little bit tender. So I had no idea what he had. It sounded like a typical blurry colic or gastritis or dietary indiscretion. He's not drinking any alcohol at all. So I reviewed some of his lab work from his previous visit, and it was quite fascinating. I just want to tell you the important stuff from a day earlier. His sodium was 140. That was okay. Chloride 102, nothing special. Potassium 4, hmm, that's all right. His bicarb was 19. I'm not too impressed by 19. I see sort of low bicarbs all the time. Sometimes I ignore it. His anion gap was 19. Liver function tests were normal. His blood sugar was 11. That was the day before I saw him. So I figured, you know what? I better repeat his... Um, his blood work, I had no idea why he was short of breath. So just for our American listeners, a blood sugar of 11 in Canada is about 200 or so. Absolutely, 200 milligram percent. In the U.S., okay. Yeah, exactly. So get a load of his repeats. The sodium was now 142, not that impressive. His chloride was 95, that's a bit low. His bicarb was now 14. That's low. Hmm. That is low, <laughs> and his potassium was 4.8, and he's walking around feeling a bit short of breath. His anion gap was 33. His anion gap earlier, the day before, had been 22. Well, that was hard to miss, and uh, his sugar was 13. All right, so at this point, you're thinking uh, you're going to go through your gold marks mnemonic yes. uh, or your mud piles. Mud I like piles. I'm thinking, uh, this guy's probably got acidosis, and he hasn't got diarrhea. 
And he's only had diabetes for three years. So where are things like renal tubular acidosis he hasn't got? Besides, RTA doesn't really give you anion gaps. So I figured, I wonder if he's got ketoacidosis or diabetic ketoacidosis. But he wasn't an alcoholic, but his sugar was only 13. So I ran to our computer, checked Google, and actually I discovered the following. Number one, I, I had reviewed the fact that these drugs like Invocana or sodium glucose transport 2 inhibitors work by having you spill tons of glucose. Because glucose is about 95% filtered and reabsorbed in the proximal convoluted tubule. But with these drugs, you lose about a quarter of your daily intake of, uh, of glucose. So his, it, it works by lowering your sugar. And that's maybe why sugar was 13. And he was acidotic. So of course, then I got a serum ketone. And guess what? The serum ketones were positive. So I've got a patient who's short of breath, probably from acidosis because his lungs were fine. I've got a person anion gap. The most likely cause here, of course, would be diabetic ketoacidosis. Why was sugar only 13? Because he's spilling all the sugar into his urine because that's the way these drugs work. So essentially, you've got a euglycemic DKA. Absolutely. And traditionally, uh, that would be in people who are starving to death, who had been diabetic for so long, had no glycogen left. So in the good old days, before insulin was around, these starving type 1 diabetics would have ketoacidosis, eventually run out of glycogen. They might have blood sugars that were reasonably low. So I uh, referred him to the internist on call, who, of course, was quite surprised by his blood sugar. We both checked the internet again, looked up this, these, this family of medications, sodium glucose transporter inhibitors, to realize that this has been reported. And it's not that common. The reports were somewhere between 1 per 1,000 patient years, even probably less. And the FDA in 2015 had reported about 100 cases of euglycemic, diabetic, ketoacidosis. And of course, what I read was phenomenally interesting. I read the cases are usually missed because the blood sugar isn't high. The patients often present with shortness of breath, which this person did from ketosis. The patients often present with epigastric discomfort and nausea because ketones cause epigastric pain and nausea. And it wasn't at all unusual that this patient had been worked up for biliary disease and dyspepsia because most patients with a bit of epigastric nausea will be worked up for biliary disease and uh, GI distress. So he was the absolute classical case of euglycemic, diabetic, ketoacidosis diagnosed on the second or third visit to the emergency department. This is a classic case. All right, so these medications are the SGLT2 inhibitors, which are sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors. Canaglyphosin? Canaglyphosin. Canaglyphosin <laughs> in Canada. Yeah. There's also a whole bunch of other ones that end in Zin. I guess the, the key thing to remember is that these medications end in Zin. So if you see on that list something that ends in Zin in a patient who comes in with shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting sort of epigastric discomfort, malaise, and you're not sure what's going on, just think about this diagnosis. And how do, how do these SGLT2 inhibitors actually cause DKA? First of all, they treat diabetes in a manner completely different from every other previous drug. Previous drugs work by either decreasing glucose absorption from your gut or by enhancing the release of insulin or sensitizing your cells to insulin. These drugs are revolutionary. They have no direct impact on insulin. At least they're not supposed to. They work by preventing the reabsorption of glucose. So you're dumping your glucose into your urine in large amounts. What's the advantage of that? Well, if you're dumping your glucose, you don't need as much insulin. 
So whereas many other pills cause weight gain by requiring more and more insulin and they make you hungry, these pills don't make you hungry. You just dump your glucose into your urine. But there's something very subtle about these drugs. Most people, when they're taking drugs for diabetes, the insulin levels go up. With these particular drugs, you're dumping your glucose, your glucose levels drop, your insulin levels will often go down. And when your insulin levels go down and your glucose levels are going down, your glucagon levels may actually go up. This is a complete paradox. You've got diabetes, you're taking a drug, your sugar goes down, the body's happy. It now produces less insulin and a bit more glucagon. And this usually works out well. But the occasional person, as insulin level drops and the glucagon level goes up, you begin to get all the changes of diabetic ketoacidosis. And now it's bad news. All right, so that's how it works. You know, when you were telling the story, it kind of reminded me, you know, someone comes in with a metabolic acidosis, they have some nausea and kind of GI upset and ketones. You know, that sounds awfully like alcoholic ketoacidosis. So how do you distinguish alcoholic ketoacidosis from this euglycemic DKA? Yeah, so alcoholic ketoacidosis may look the same, but I'll tell you a bit of a difference. Uh, Alcoholics tend to be thin and have low glycogen stores. What alcohol does is it inhibits glycogenolysis and alcohol inhibits gluconeogenesis. So alcoholics are actually starving and their sugars are very, very, very low. It can be four, five, six millimoles. Diabetics, not in these medications, have gluconeogenesis going on and glycogenolysis. Their sugar is high, traditionally over 15 millimoles or 250 milligram percent. These patients have blood sugars that are not that impressive. They're seven millimoles, eight millimoles, 10 millimoles, 11 or 12, between 150 milligram percent and 250 milligram percent. A number which, to the average doctor, is not that alarming. As well, we know diabetics get gastroparesis, but alcoholics can get nausea and vomiting as well. So blood sugar is a big deal. And of course, it's all about the history. If an alcoholic is not taking a sodium glucose transporter 2 inhibitor, this diagnosis is off the table. But if someone is taking this medication, then you've got to wonder if they have epigastric discomfort and they're short of breath, are they going into DKA? All righty. So now you got this patient, you know what the diagnosis is. You treat them pretty much like you would DKA, but I imagine that they go seriously hypoglycemic if you treat them exactly the same as you would a DKA with a super high blood sugar. How's the treatment different? Sure. So when you're treating DKA, when you give insulin, you have two major goals in mind. Number one, lower your blood sugar. Number two, stop lipolysis. They're both important. And lowering sugar is often easier than stopping lipolysis. So traditionally with DKA, you will use normal saline or half normal saline. You'll give insulin and sugar drops under about 15 millimoles or about 200. You will add D5 to your normal saline or D5 to half normal saline to prevent hypoglycemia. So you never really stop giving IV insulin until the ketosis and acidosis is under control. These patients are beginning with a blood sugar of 10, 50 millimoles per liter. You will probably begin normal saline with D5 immediately. So they require sugar and electrolytes right off the bat. The insulin requirements are exactly the same 
and the acidosis will be managed with exactly the same amount of insulin, often 0.1 unit per kilogram, which you may actually have to increase if you aren't getting your ketosis under control. I suppose the key take-home point here, if you can remember anything about euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis, is that if you have a patient on one of these medications that ends in Zin, and they come in and they have GI upset or shortness of breath, malaise, be sure to get serum ketone. And especially if they've got an anion gap metabolic acidosis, they probably have euglycemic DKA and you need to start giving them insulin as well as early dextrose. If you have a diabetic person with epigastric discomfort, you may think about gastroparesis, you may think of delirium colic, consider getting some electrolytes, even with some nausea epigastric discomfort, because ketones causes those symptoms. As well, when someone says they're short of breath and they're diabetic, I think it's always important to consider, could this be early DKA? I got to tell you, I see many diabetics present with shortness of breath and DKA was missed at least initially. Have I got stories for you? I, I've seen people with DKA who've received Valium for anxiety. I've seen people with DKA who've got, well, here's a case right now. They've got, they're getting PPIs for epigastric discomfort. Keep that in your mind. Diabetics can fool you and ketones can certainly cause symptoms mimicking gastroparesis, gastritis, and bloody colic. Immersed uh, doctors are focused on the ABCs, life-threatening emergencies, and of course, we're focused on, on, on saving the patient's life, not missing serious disease. But we're at a bit of a disadvantage sometimes. In primary care, whether it's through fine practice or internal medicine, there are lots of new drugs coming to market, and we might not be totally aware of the newest, greatest drugs that are being used in office-based practice. But these patients are coming to our department. So to some extent, we've got to be aware of new drugs. And certainly, the patient is ill, and you look at their list of medications and don't recognize some of them, it might be worthwhile looking at the program you love and just looking up side effects of these medications. Because it might be years before they're completely on our radar screen because we never start or rarely start these drugs on our own. And there's tons of new things happening in diabetes today and hypertension and everything else for that matter. And all the complications, of course, come to us. As I say, emergency medicine is a specialty that treats everybody else's complications. So we have to know a lot. 